0: Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. On last week's edition of the podcast, we had my top 10 best films of the year so far. So that was January through June. Not films that released in July, just the first six months of the year. As I said, the rules are very simple. There has to be a film that was theatrically released in the UK in the first six months of the year. So we're not counting festival screeners. There were, obviously, there'll be some films that released in other territories at different times, but these are films that were released in the UK. So I did my top 10 best and worst. If you missed that, just go back and download it first, because actually, I think it was really good list that told us a lot about how great the state of cinema is at the moment people complain all the time saying oh cinema it's not as good as it used to be which is absolute nonsense there are brilliant films released every year it's just sometimes people can't find them or they don't see them people say oh it's all superhero movies now no it isn't no there's much much more than that you just have to seek out the gems in fact when I was doing my best and worst list you'll be pleased to know that there were many more contenders for the best list than there were for the worst list and in fact in the worst of the year list there are some films where which are kind of all right they're just a bit of a disappointment so for this podcast having done best top 10 of the year so far I'm going to do the worst films of the year so far January through June my least favorite films released in the UK in the first half of 2019 you with me cool off we go So at number 10, I was saying there were some films in here that are just disappointing rather than outright terrible, and Dark Phoenix falls right into that category. Now, the world of superhero movies has changed for the better. It's much more diverse, it's much more interesting, it's much more complicated than perhaps it used to be, but... In the case of dark phoenix for which i have to say i had high hopes i was sorely disappointed okay there are some good things so if you turn to jessica chastain they're pretty good and there are ideas in the film that okay i can see where it's going i can see how it's you know trying to maybe rewrite the rule book but here's the problem the problem with dark phoenix is it's just not very well written the film begins with a car crash and actually narratively it kind of continues in that vein for much of the rest of the film Also, it didn't find its audience. I mean, yes, it was kicked around town by critics, but that's not the reason it didn't find its audience. It didn't find its audience because people just weren't that engaged or that interested. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Often when I do the top 10 lists, I say, you know, every film in here, oh, well, the people involved, you know, should be embarrassed or ashamed for themselves, blah, blah, blah. In the case of this, the writer-director, Simon Kimberg actually was really stand-up about it. Very shortly after the film opened and clearly wasn't doing well, he said this, I'm saying that when a movie doesn't work, put it on me. I'm the writer-director. The movie didn't connect with audiences. That's on me. It's clearly a movie that didn't connect with audiences that didn't see it, but didn't connect enough with audiences that did see it. So, actually, hats off to the writer and director for taking the responsibility for the film's failure and I I take no pleasure in saying that I don't think it was anything like as good as it should have been in a way I wish it wasn't in the list but you know it tells you something about the fact that we haven't had a bad six months that it is in the list at number 10 the disappointment of Dark Phoenix this land was given to us by the US government we have no intention of taking it back we're not here for you we're looking for one of the X-Men Jean Grey I haven't seen her in a long time and you won't mind if we look around do you mind if I came to your home? unannounced, and uninvited. Look, I know who you are. I don't want to fight. No, you don't. Stop that. I said stop that right now! It's not me. It's me. Gene? Jean? on to number nine and tolkien or as i like to call it hobbity hmm this is a biographical drama about the author of books which spawn some of the best-selling movies of all time and it's not so much finding neverland as kind of losing middle earth nicholas holt plays the author whose childhood took him from a rural shire to an industrial hellhole hmm. and whose friends became a fellowship chubby mm. who wants to give his girlfriend a ring Hmm. and i spent the whole movie doing this going oh come on when they get to the battlefields of europe and he sees devastation on a scale that looks like mordor you think okay fine i don't doubt for one minute that tolkien's life really did influence his fiction But was it really this televisual? Was it really this soapy? Was it really this creaky and this clunky? I mean, the strange thing is, if you look at Tolkien's writing, it's incredibly inventive and it can be brought to the screen brilliantly. I mean, in the case of Lord of the Rings, we know that not only the Jackson movies, which of course got such great success and became some of the biggest selling movies of all time, but in fact, there was the animated version beforehand, which people turned their noses up. But you know what? There were some quite good things in it. In the case of Tolkien, it is really like let's try and knit together every bit of autobiographical detail and somehow find it in the books. And it just doesn't work. It did, however, remind me that I need to see the Karen Carpenter story again very soon. My class is full, Mr. Tolkien, full. With students who can translate old English at least as quickly and skillfully as you and have already had two terms to establish themselves. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Professor. Since childhood I have been fascinated with language. Obsessed with it. I've invented my own full complete languages. Look. This is it's, it's everything. From the the breast hoard, my heart, the treasure of the breast. And the drawings, I made stories. Legends after all, what is language for? It's, it's not just the naming of things, is it? It's the lifeblood of a culture, a people. Yeah, exactly. exactly. On to number eight, and the curse of La Rona, a.k.a. the curse of the weeping woman, or in my case, the curse of the sleeping film critic. This film is part of the ever-expanding Conjuring universe. The story is essentially a 17th century Mexican woman still haunts the world of the 1970s, blah, 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 blah. What does the spectre of the La Llorona, the Weeping Woman, look like? Well, as before, looks like Marilyn Manson crossed with an angry nun. There is no narrative to speak of except that there's lots and lots and lots and lots of really quiet bits followed by something which goes bang very loudly. And every time the nun appears, it's very, very quiet. Everything goes very, very quiet. And then it suddenly goes bang very, very loudly. And that is literally how the whole film proceeds: Quiet, 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 bang. Quiet, 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 bang. Quiet quiet, 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 False scare fight. Bang. You know, I don't mind quiet, quiet, bang up to a point But the film does need to have a point. And that point needs to be more than reminding you of the title of a song by The Knack, which you never liked the first time round. And number seven in my list of my least favorite films released in the first half of 2019 in the UK cinemas, Bel Canto. And this is a particular disappointment because it's a Julianne Moore film. I've had Julianne Moore films in my least favourite films of the year before. I mean, Julianne Moore does a lot of work and she's generally brilliant in everything, even the bad films. But in Bel Canto, even she can't save it. This is based on a book which is apparently very, very good. I think somewhere in the back of it, there is the merest hint of a true story. But that is so far in the background as basically, you know, it's a work of fiction that may somehow vaguely weirdly be related to something that might actually have happened but didn't really at least anything anyway not like this so story is Julianne Moore is an opera singer in this unnamed South American territory Ken Watanabe is this industrialist who has basically arranged for her to come and do a private gig she's being paid a lot of money to do this gig and um, she's just turned up she's going to do it it's in the president's house an ambassador's house and uh, wouldn't you know it Everyone's in there, gorillas turn up, they want to kidnap the president, but he's not there, he's at home watching television, he was meant to be at the gig, but he isn't, so they don't have anything. But they do have Julianne Moore as an opera singer, but the thing is, the thing is, no one can own Julianne Moore's operatic voice not even Julianne Moore, as it turns out, because it's some of the worst miming I've ever seen in my life. I mean, you think, who is piping that opera singing in from outside? And why is it that she looks like she, she could no more sing opera than fly in the air? It's preposterous, Tosh. It's kind of mixing slushy romance with hostage drama and taking Julianne Moore and putting her in a bad light, which is never a good thing. Oh, my favourite bit in the movie, the character who literally spends the whole movie with dead meat written on their forehead because you know they're not going to make it to the final reel. The government has turned off the weather to the house to make things more uncomfortable for us. mm hmm I gathered that. We need water. My comrade, Commandant Alfredo, he wants to shoot someone just to show the government who is in charge. But I have another thought. What's that? I want you to sing. I want you to sing loud enough that these animals outside can hear it. What good would that do? It might remind them what is at stake. Uh-uh. No, I won't sing. Not for you. What's that? Look at the mandamos. She says to do what you're told. Oh, or what? You'll shoot me? You've kept one woman, one American, Una Americana. If you shoot me, what do you think will happen to you and your people? I don't think I need to do what you say. Then on to number six. Now, if you've been to the cinema in the last month or so, You may well have been to see Lion King, which is being billed as the live-action remake of the Disney animation, although, frankly, the new version is an animated film to all intents and purposes. It's photorealist animation. There's nothing in it that's actually live or real. It's all computer-generated. It's very well computer-generated, but it's all computer-generated, so it is animated. Meanwhile, Disney are working their way through their animated back catalogue, doing, in inverted commas, live-action versions of their cartoons, of their animated features. Dumbo is the Tim Burton uh, live action again in inverted commas reinvention of Dumbo that gives you this kind of weirdly realistic flying elephant that just looks all the more unrealistic because it looks realistic. Here's the thing, if you look at a cartoon, and if you remember Dumbo, the cartoon style is actually very simple, the lines are very straightforward, it's really kind of, really charmingly innocent animation, okay fine, the elephant's got big ears, it can fly, when you try and create a CG version of that, and, you know, put it around with live action characters, I just sat there thinking, that doesn't make any aerodynamic sense at all, that elephant would never be able to fly with those ears, you know, the, 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 the physics of it don't work, also, The original animation is a total weepy. It's like a stab in the heart. You start watching the film, you start crying. There's no way you can't. This is really cluttered. It's full of stuff. There's curlicues and things and inventions and machinery. It looks like a Tim Burton movie, but it has no heart. At no point did I cry. A couple of giggles and chuckles, perhaps, but nothing more than that. How can you take the story of Dumbo and turn it into something which is emotionally unengaging? Well, somehow Tim Burton found a way. Rongo, telegram to Becker: We have been bilked with damaged goods. This is an aberration, Station, and I demand my money back. But whatever you do, do not call the papers. We are not advertising this, baby. Tell me you didn't do it. You did it? Never do anything, I tell you, without checking with me first. On to number five, and at number five, the hustle. Now, here's the thing with the hustle. If you ever saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels... Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was a remake of Bedtime Story, which was from 1964. And I didn't like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels very much. And I've never seen Bedtime Story, but I am assured that Bedtime Story is better than Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Maybe it isn't. I don't like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels very much. So when I heard that what was happening was a new version of the same story, Bedtime Story, another remake, this time gender-reversed, with Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson, I thought, okay, fine. Well, you know what? At least it's going to be better than Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah, it isn't. And it isn't for a number of reasons. Firstly, there's, you know, some jokes in the opening five minutes, after which it just goes into this absolute abyss-like vacuum of non-laughter. Secondly, Anne Hathaway's character in it is so bad with her British accent that I thought that she was deliberately meant to be doing somebody who was putting on an accent that wasn't their own. But I actually think she was just meant to be doing it straight. It's a real shame, because I really like Anne Hathaway, I really like Rebel Wilson, and I was pretty certain that nobody could make a bigger mess of this story than Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which, again, starred people that I really like. And yet, somehow, The Hustle was absolutely an entertainment-free zone. I just, you know, went to see it first thing in the morning, thinking, I just, this is great, I'll, I'll get some laughs, it'll be fun, you know, I'll cheer up, it'll put a spring in my step, you know, endorphin rush, all that stuff. Hmm. Insufficient laughter. What do men want? Boobs. No. Backed off. Front door. Picking, oh my God, threesome. What, what is it? What's the answer? They want to be heroes. There's nothing more compelling to a man than a vulnerable woman. Observe. Oh wow, you can just tear up like that. You can just balance a tear right on that lower lid. Yes. And can you make the tear roll down your cheek? Oh, oh. Okay, but can you make it go back up? Now you try. Okay. Are you constipated? No. Why are the theatrics? You're hot, that's enough. It is not enough. Hot is not a career. Hot will get you gifts and trinkets, but you must pay for them in other ways. Sex, Penny. Number four, a sequel that nobody wanted. Men in Black International. Now, let's be honest. It's not really a surprise that a new belated Men in Black sequel isn't that great. None of the Men in Black sequels have been anything like as good as the original. In fact, when the original came out, it was really exciting and interesting and new and, and, and you know, there was something about it. You thought, oh, this is great. This is, you know, this is this is a really sort of interesting movie. And then we said, OK, it's going to turn into a franchise. Immediately, we started to get diminishing returns. In the case of this, it's directed by F. Gary Gray, who's made stuff which I really like, but with very little spark here. It features Emma Thompson, who you know, I love and Tessa Thompson, who I think is great and yet neither of them ever managed to lift it out of the doldrums of something which feels utterly mechanical, utterly corporate, utterly, you know, production line. The best thing in it is Kamala Gioni voices this uh, this kind of chess piece character, almost like a talking chess piece. I think when you first meet him, he's actually on a chessboard. And as soon as he, t- he came on, I thought, oh, this is great, he's going to be funny because I think he's really funny and I really enjoy him and he's got a great sense of humour. And yes, it's true, when he's talking, there are some jokes that are fine, but he's only a small part of the movie in every possible way, and I kept thinking I'd rather just watch him do stand-up, in which I can see him as well—not the character that he's meant to be, uh, that he's meant to be inhabiting. I'd just much rather watch him doing stand-up, doing comedy, whether it's in television or, or in film. In fact, I'd much rather be watching The Big Sick. In fact, that's what I'd rather do. I don't need to watch Men in Black International. I'd rather watch The Big Sick. Why am I watching this? Excuse me. What happened here? We had the best party. Kanye showed up and dropped like a whole new album. Look around. We got our asses kicked. <sighs> my queen. <clears throat> I'll never serve another. I must end my own life in the most painful way possible. I don't think that she would want you to, you know. Who are you to know what a queen would or wouldn't want? Are you a queen? Well, I mean, to the extent that all women are, yes. But no, no. I'm not a queen. You know what? She is, though, is an agent. Is that a title? It is a title. Maybe the best way to honor the dead is to go on living. Yes. I pledge loyalty eternal to you, Agent M. No, no, no. I'm not interested in a subject. Too late. It's done. I already pledged the loyalty. I wish you'd said no, no, no before. And if you should die before I, I promise to end my own life in the most painful way possible. Yeah, ha. I don't like you. Now on to number three, and this was something which caused... Some discussion, some heated discussion, some heated discussion on Twitter, and you know how heated discussion on Twitter goes. The thing about Twitter is it's so great for nuanced uh, replies and for people to really get the subtleties of something. So Godzilla, king of the monsters. Now, I really like the Gareth Edwards Godzilla. I thought it had genuinely beautiful moments. I thought the halo jump moment, and it was fantastic. I actually really like Kong Skull Island, which is directed by Jordan White Roberts, who I think is great. You know, I think he's a brilliant director. OK, he's fighting with the franchise in Kong Skull Island, but at least he's got a story. I mean, the story is apocalypse now, but it's a story. Godzilla King of the Monsters has no coherence, no story. At least not one that makes any sense. No characters, at least not any that you care about. Terrible dialogue, dialogue that appears to be written by a random word generator. Actors who literally look like they are reading their contract rather than performing. And what you're left with is stuff, just stuff. And here's the whole thesis of the movie. This is stuff, but look how big it is. It's really big stuff. See this big thing over here? Here's another big thing over here. And then this big thing over here is going to bash that big thing there. And then, and look, it's big. Look how big it is. It's really big and it's stuff. It's big stuff. It's stuff that's big. And there's lots of it, of this big stuff. And then it ends. For the top two, it was actually pretty difficult to decide which one I disliked the most. And in fact, I ended up making a call that the worst one was going to be the one for which I had the greatest expectations. But at number two is a film which I actually did have some expectation for because it's made by the guy who made It Follows. At number two is Under the Silver Lake, which is the follow-up from David Robert Mitchell who made It Follows. Andrew Garfield, who I like usually, stars in this fantastically self-indulgent, dreary, onanistic narrative in which Hollywood essentially eats itself and pats itself on the back at the same time. It's like watching some kind of strange acrobatic trick. It's a mystery that is centred around famous Los Angeles locations. There's the James Dean Observatory. There's, oh, look, there are gravestones with famous film directors' names on them. Here is a score that is reminding us, oh, I think it's trying to sound a little bit, is it Hitchcockian? Well, it certainly thinks it is. It certainly thinks that it's unravelling this incredible mystery about, hey, you know, pop culture and comics and pop music. Wow. Have you ever stopped to think about them? Because, like, when you do, man, it's just like, wow. They're, like, really intense. And it's just great. And excuse me, I'm just peering out of the window through these binoculars at some uh, woman who I don't know, but she's walking around scantily clad because every single woman in the film is doing that. Because, hey, Andrew Garfield, he's, like, creepy, except he's not creepy... Because he's Andrew Garfield. It's okay. He's like a Hitchcockian voyeur. And oh, anyway, this thing with the comics and the Silver Lake and the st- pop culture and random things. And did, oh, and then what's Andrew doing? Oh, he's staring at another woman walking around. He's not wearing very much, but she likes him because he's Andrew Garfield, but not creepy. He's Andrew Garfield. And this goes on and on, and on, and on, and on. And then at one point, there's a long section about the relevance of the front cover of a Playboy magazine that he kept under his bed forever and ever. And then he goes off to this place where this person's hiding in a rock or a hill, I don't know, with a bunch of instruments around him. And it makes Beneath the Planet of the Apes look like a really, really sort of sensibly low-key film about Armageddon. This film goes on and on and on. And the only thing I could think about it was this is exactly like Southland Tales. Now, it turns out that everybody thought the same thing. Everybody thought that the film was exactly like Southland Tales, because again, that was a film made by somebody who made a great movie beforehand, Donnie Darko. And so you think, okay, their previous film, the one they just made is really great. They're gonna make something interesting. And then Southland Tales comes along and it's really, really terrible. In the case of Under the Silver Lake, the film has its defenders. There are people I know and like and respect very much who think it's a really interesting film. They think it's a comment on masculinity as opposed to uh, just a a celebration of Andrew Garfield's wibbling and wobbling and wandering hither and yon to no great end. I'd say this. The film has a postmodern sense of humour and postmodernity means never having to say you're Sorry. (laughs) which brings me to my least favorite film of the year it's an art house movie that got some great reviews from some critics who were completely taken in by the fact that it is basically a bunch of old crap it is of course Mektub My Love Canto Uno, First Canto, by Abdelatif Kashish, who made Blue is the Warmest Colour. Now, if you saw Blue is the Warmest Colour, you will know that there was a debate about it, which is, oh, is it art or is it actually exploitative porn? Is it art or is it exploitative porn? Do the sex scenes need to go on that long? Or is it art? Is it actually telling a story in the best way of telling the story? Or is it actually appealing to the more leering elements of the audience's sensibility? Well, now you can throw that debate out the window because it has been solved once and for all by Mechtub, my love. 1990s, I think, is the setting young man who wants to be a screenwriter goes back to his, his hometown, where he spends a lot of time on the beach with young people splashing and laughing and frolicking and romping to their heart's content. There are romantic intrigues, there are double crossings and double dealings, but not very intense, not very personal, but you know what, it doesn't matter, because the film is three hours long, and many of those hours consist of the director, Abdelatif Kashish, getting his camera to look up people's skirts and to ogle their bums. Honestly, I have never seen Love Island, but having seen to Mecht- my love, I feel that I have. The last half hour of the movie is pretty much a close up of Bottoms. It is the most ass obsessed film I have ever seen. There are moments in this film in which you genuinely think, okay, this is like somebody's home movie that they've accidentally shown to the rest of the audience. You just really, really, does the camera need to be there? Do you need to have that angle? Do we need to see this again? I mean, Okay, fine, we get it. Yeah, okay, move on. Please move on. I want to look, please do something else. It genuinely is one of the most creepily voyeuristic films I think I've ever seen. It goes on forever and ever. It is so proud of its art house credentials. Hey, it's okay, I'm doing this because I'm an artist. So, like, when I'm looking up people's skirts and ogling their bums, it's like art. Is it? Bollocks. Meck my love. Meck to my ass. What's up? What's debrief. Uh, the de la soirée de the Et cool. Ça donne that you're 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 pas so there we are my least favorite films of the year so far january through june just to run down them again at number 10 the disappointment of dark phoenix at number nine talking at number eight the curse of la 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 Rona. number seven bel canto number six dumbo number five the hustle number four men in black international number three godzilla king of the monsters number two under the silver lake and at number one mechtub my arse now, obviously, there's going to be films in there that you liked. Maybe there are some films that you thought were much worse and deserved inclusion on the list. Let me know what your choices are. Best way to get in touch is on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle, I think as the young people have it, is at movie. Get in touch and let me know. Uh, thanks so much for downloading this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, and keep watching the skies.